many women are leaving the service industry, which was mainstay that's been stuck that way for so long that when you go to a, a restaurant, people would often just say, ask the waitress without even looking to see if it was a waiter because it was so common for it to be a waitress. Expect that to be changing. Expect that to be a more even mix into the future. This is what we're seeing in the numbers right now. Why? Because there's a recognition of the value and the quality of the work that anybody can provide. It isn't about, well, suddenly we're not sexist. It's the technology is here to allow both sexes to compete on the same field. And it would not surprise me in 50 years to have the majority of CEOs on the stock exchange be women. Once more onto the breach, dear friends. Else fill the wall up with our English dead. Good morning, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, and welcome to another exciting episode of the starring Jake and Jeff McClure. There, I said it in my radio voice. I, I, I did everything that you normally want me to do. It was ultra enthusiastic. I included boys and girls, though what they're doing, listening to an economic talk well, show you, you uh, just you missed the excitement that i knew as, as a child we would gather around a radio mm -hmm. and it literally said ladies and gentlemen boys and girls welcome to and then they, the name of the show right right so i mean i get that uh, but I, I suspect that the children of today on a saturday morning are not gathered around around the radio to listen to two bald bearded men talk about economics. Actually, if it comes to radio, unless we tell them that we're bald bearded men, they don't know that we're bald bearded men. Oh, oh men. Uh, please um, uh, just go back and remove that from the record. Uh, strike that from the record, please. We are, um, we are young women. Yes. You, uh, no. Actually, <laughs> if you want to see a good image of us, it's the Smith Brothers cough drops. Oh, um, before or after eating. I mean the 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 old Smith Brothers cough cough drops uh, and what was it trademark? See, you're still Pictures dating yourself. Bearded. Talking about gathering I don't around date a myself. radio. I have a perfectly good wife that I date. Yes, okay, she's dating you as well. That's all I'm saying. Yeah. Um, yes, she does date me. Uh, so I've been married to her for 52 years, so that dates me. Yes, those of you who don't know, the guy who just spoke about being married 52 years is my dad. Elder Baldy and Younger Baldy. We've been in business together for, oh my goodness, 31 years. And and yeah. neither of us are insane. In, insane. In, insane. Oh, sorry. Um, we're, we're perfectly normal, I tell you. Perfectly normal. 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 Okay. All right. Um, we are here not to talk about our own mental health, though that might be pertinent in, in, uh, information at some point. We are rather here to talk about the dreary science, the dismal science of economics, as well as personal finance and some concepts of what to do in investing and all that. But before we get started on that, we have to disclose. Uh, and I'm going to try to say our disclosures relatively quickly this time. Let me try it. No, no, it's too hard. I'm going to have to do it slowly. Um, the Personal Wealth Coach is not just the name of this podcast and or radio program. It's also the name of a firm, same firm that 
we're the two principals of these hosts and principals. It's like we have dual personalities or something. Wait, no more mental health. Sorry, we'll get to that later. Um, what what I'm saying here is that the personal wealth coach is also a firm, and it's a firm that's registered with the SEC to give fiduciary investment advice. Um, but we can't do that on the air because fiduciary investment advice requires us to know all of you and then to be private about the advice that we're giving to all of you, which makes that impossible. So instead, we're giving you education, hopefully, maybe some entertainment and probably a lot of frustration and groaning over our attempts at entertaining. Um, so that being said, just because it's registered with the SEC, our firm, doesn't mean that they think we're any kind of better than anybody else. In fact, I think their general opinion of most people registered with them is what's wrong with you and we will find it. Um, so all that's saying is they haven't given us our approval just because we're registered with them. They're just the ones that regulate us. Next up, we don't pay for this program. So I just told you that we run a for-profit business and we're required to tell you about it. And it's actually the same name as the program, but we don't pay for this program and we don't get paid to do the program. This is a partnership we've been in with KTEM since 1996 over how many owners have they had during that time period? Three, I don't four? even like to think of it. Well, uh, different studios now than they had. They, we actually, KTEM had its own studio oh, building. Yeah. Big, when we started. big building. It had two big, and now we're not even in this studio. We're, we're coming remotely to it. Uh, so all we're saying there is that we do advertise on KTEM, but all of our advertisement is for this program. And they advertise on their uh, station as well for this program. So it's the same partnership we've had for a very long time. And um, so you want to do the next disclosure? Do you deem it worthy? I, I so deem. The information we present on this educational radio program, not investment advice, has been obtained from sources we deem to be reliable. But we make no warranty or guarantee as to the accuracy or completeness of said information. You like that? That was cool. And we absolutely don't guarantee the completeness of unsaid information. There. Well, I think it's completely unsaid. Then it's completely incomplete. Right. Right. We guarantee it. We're silly. Yes, we're, we are. We're weird. You're probably groaning and saying, when are you going to get to the market? Well, I want to jump into something that we mentioned in the newsletter, but we really haven't spent a lot of time on. Uh, I, I mentioned it in talking about inflation in that little blurb a moment ago or last hour um it it is important to note that um labor is interesting right now this is labor. labor uh yes the who's working and who isn't uh unemployment insurance claims for last week were 187,000 well that sounds like a lot of people that's the lowest number since september of 1969 do you remember september 1969 i i do not i it, oh. is, it is pre-birth for me uh but oh. you know it, that that's a long time ago to think that that's the lowest number we've had then but it that's not the only crazy number in the mix that's 52 years ago by the way the number of people listed on the state's unemployment rolls declined to 1.35 million what does that mean? Well, that sounds like a lot too. I mean, 1.35 million is a lot of people. That's the lowest number since, since January of 1970. I remember January 1970. The population of the United States has grown significantly since then. Mm -hmm. So when you factor in 
for population growth. We've never had numbers these low, this low, ever. That means that we are in more full employment than we have ever, ever been. Mm. Uh, I mean, at the heights of World War II when everybody was in the army, but we weren't really keeping good roles on that. So, and at that point, this is an important factor. A lot of women weren't working. And again, right. our well, population- yeah, they they're were working. They just weren't in the, working. Yeah, in somebody paying. Them. According to unemployment, they they were just not even considered <laughs> in the mix. I just talk about horror. Um, so, having said that, it's a tight labor market. It means that there are a lot of people um, who are asking people to come work, and a lot fewer people that want to go to work there. Uh, a lot of people are moving from one job to another. Uh, the this is important because in the middle of the of the pandemic in the worst parts of the pandemic when everybody's on lockdown and there were several episodes where we talked about who's being hit the hardest and one group of people we've already mentioned them they weren't even covered in unemployment stuff back in world war ii era women were hit the hardest with unemployment during during the pandemic there's a lot of cultural reasons for that still uh in that they're more likely to be the ones to go home if the kids are not at school. Uh, so they're less likely to have time to be working if they're being a parent full-time, apparently. Sorry, I had to throw in that. I couldn't help it. I couldn't help it. It's hard. Well, they are now, women are winning the biggest pay raises from uh, across the U.S. in this boom. Uh, they are outstripping men in the percentage of pay increase. The men are still being paid more. That's something we got to deal with because all of the studies are pretty clear on this. And if you find a man that disagrees with you on this, there's some problems. Women are generally smarter than men. <laughs> there's lots and lots of studies on this. There are more women enrolled in college for the last decade than men enrolled in college for the last decade. There's a lot of reasons why uh, there's disparity in pay, cultural. Uh, I, I don't think the term sexist is a good thing, except that it sure looks like it when you're looking at the numbers, except for when you look at the numbers right now. Uh, women were most hardly hit, the hardest hit of the groups of men or women in unemployment during the pandemic. And they are shooting back up uh jumping it, it's it's the the largest that's happened since 1997 well what was happening in 1997 well that was the real digital revolution was occurring there uh, a great deal of our work was in heavy lifting and industrial type situations and then we made this transition in the 90s into sitting at a computer and doing that work and suddenly women could compete with men. And so we had this big boost of women getting higher raises than men for a while because, whoa, you could bring women in to do this job. It doesn't take whiskery faces to do this job. Oh, oh let's do that. Well, this is the opposite of that in some ways. This is like near predetermined. We actually talked about this back during the pandemic that when the workforce starts coming back, we expect to see massive improvements in the pay for women because they will be in demand 
and it's going to be hard to hire them. So here it is. It's happening. It's it's really easy to be proud about these things, but they're really common sense when you <laughs> lay them out to be proud about the predictions. But they're common sense when you lay them out that we're in a really tight later labor market and the most affected by unemployment by, were women, which means they are the ones that are most sought after right now. They're the largest group of sought after people because they were the largest group of unemployed. So this is fantastic. The measurement and pay raises is people that already had jobs. So the vast majority of people leaving jobs right now are going to a job that is paying them more. This is kind of an employee market in the job market right now, where just two years ago, it was anything but. So another part of this is that many women are leaving the service industry, which was mainstay that's been stuck that way for so long that when you go to a, a restaurant, people would often just say, ask the waitress without even looking to see if it was a waiter because it was so common for it to be a waitress. Expect that to be changing. Expect that to be a more even mix into the future. This is what we're seeing in the numbers right now. Why? Because there's a recognition of the value and the quality of the work that anybody can provide. It isn't about, well, suddenly we're not sexist. It's the technology is here to allow both sexes to compete on the same field. And it would not surprise me in 50 years to have the majority of CEOs on the stock exchange be women. Because that's kind of quality stuff. And men don't live as long. And there's a lot of other reasons. And it, and it sounds like I'm talking like crazy revolution stuff. I'm just talking about there's a pattern in the demographics. And it's pretty clear. And the pandemic may have been a thing that far, far more than, you know, ranting feminist rallies to create equality between men and women. And I think that's been the case forever. Technology is needed to provide us with the ability to be ethical. Um, and that's my, my short but very long-winded statement about the labor market. There. All right. The and market labor. Market labor. Yes. Right. Market. Anyway, but, I'd like to talk about something else. Absolutely. It's, I could. Go right ahead. One of the things, and we, we talked about this in the newsletter, and I think it's really important particularly for us old, old guys, to get our minds sort of wrapped around this. Uh, when I was growing up, when I first was driving and things like that, Japanese cars were unusual. Uh, I drove an, an Isuzu, not an Isuzu, what was it? I don't yeah, know what it was. Isuzu Trooper, I remember that. No, that was, that was, that I was a full adult by the time right. and you had kids and so on. Yeah, There was another one that I don't remember what the name of, doesn't exist anymore. Um that I drove. And, and the reason we had a Japanese car is because my stepfather, who did the lion's share of raising me, um, had been stationed in Japan for many years and really liked Japanese cars. So he got a Japanese station wagon, a small Japanese station wagon. And that's one of the earlier cars that I drove. It was very, very unusual, very difficult to find parts for, very difficult to find mechanics for, anything else. Because I grew up in, a, in an environment, and a lot of us older guys did, where the, the stuff we bought, the things, our, our economy was basically concentrated in the United States. We imported a little bit of stuff, but made in Japan meant piece of junk. Um, if you get something very expensive, like a Leica camera from Germany, uh, that was high quality, but they were rare. 
cameras were Kodak. Uh, vehicles were Chevrolet and Ford and some Chrysler product. And, and we had an economy that was pretty well self-contained at that point. We were, in fact, exported more than we imported at that point. We, uh, it was a different economy. But there's something very, very significant here. To buy the equivalent car, automobile, from 1967 to the present, and, you know, I think this is a little strange if you look at the price of vehicles, but to buy the same vehicle, the price has effectively shrunk you can buy a vehicle that is the equivalent of, of what somebody paid $2,000 for in 1967 for only a portion of that co actual cost in terms of working hours for the average worker in the United States today because of globalization. We have a lot of stuff in our houses. We have flat screen TVs. We have everybody has air conditioning and heating. We're living at a much, much, much higher standard of living in the United States today than we were in 1967 when I graduated from high school. Was it a Datsun? It was. It was a Datsun. How do you, how'd you figure that out? I'm looking at 1967 era uh, station wagons. Um, yeah. Datsun Bluebird, and, maybe? Well, it wasn't a Bluebird. It was just a Datsun station wagon. I don't think it was a Bluebird. Okay. I mean, and it's, interestingly enough, it, it, they had a recall on them because they had a lot of little plastic tubes in around the engine that funneled the gasoline around and if you get hot enough because japan doesn't get as hot as texas um the plastic tubes would melt and spill gasoline all over the engine which was not a particularly good thing uh, so but the, the point i want to make is we had an internal economy that was relatively expensive and we lived at a lower standard of living because we had an expensive economy the cost of buying the same stuff we lived with in 1967 as I said, is a fraction today of what it was then. So we buy a lot more stuff. We make more money in the United States today. The average person in the United States today makes a lot more money in terms of buying power than they did in 1967. But here's why. Globalization. A lot of things that we, uh, that we almost everything that you buy at Walmart. Walmart, by the way, when it started, I remember very, very well, they were proud of the fact that they were almost exclusively American-made stuff when Walmart became popular. They made a big deal of that. Today, you go into Walmart, you have to really, really look hard to find something that's not made in China. The reality is that we are in a global economy. Why is that important? Because the price of oil is based on the global market of oil right now. And almost everything that we have in our economy has got some degree of dependence upon the price of oil. And that is one of those things that's hard to get our minds wrapped around. If you buy stuff, products, goods, it's been transported from someplace. And it was used, oil was used to transport it in the form of petroleum. And doggone nearly everything you buy is wrapped in plastic today in some form or fashion, which is made from oil. And we have a global economy for oil. We export oil, we import oil. We export oil products, we import oil products, and when the price of oil goes up, the price of everything goes up, and we're in a global economy. We may not like it. We may wish for the good old days. I don't personally wish for the good old days. The good old days weren't that good. Well, the good old um, days are today. Yes, but I'm talking about the good old days when I was young and everything was perfect, um, only it wasn't. We just tend to remember it that way. The issue is... We live at a much higher standard of living because we're in a globally integrated economy. However, the globally integrated economy is becoming bipolar right now. It's becoming an Eastern Bloc and a Western Bloc 
like it was during the Cold War. And as it does, the price of goods and services are going to go up. The price of food is going to go up. And as the price of food goes up and the price of everything else goes up, the people who provide the services are going to need more money to live at the same standard of living. So their prices are going to go up. This is the reality of what we're seeing in inflation today. And it boils down to something very, very simple. There is a new Cold War emerging, and I hope it stays cold. It's kind of warm right now. And that is not between communism and capitalism, which is on one side you had a communist dictatorship, and on the other side you had uh, a series of communist dictatorships. And on the other side you had what we refer to, and I know that a lot of you are going to object to this term, but this is what they're called. The people in the United States live in a liberal democracy. And what's a liberal democracy? A liberal democracy is a democracy that allows people of different views to participate in it and elect people of differing views to office and, and, and live that way. And I know that conservatives don't like the word liberal, but that's what a liberal democracy is. There are not all democracies are not liberal. Yeah, and just, uh, Russia just, technically has a democracy, but it's certainly not a liberal democracy. It's and, an autocracy democracy. And we can do a quick timeout that the word conservative and the word liberal don't mean what we mean them currently in, in politics. Conservative and liberal, conservative means to conserve and liberal means to be open minded. So when we talk about a liberal form of government, we're actually not talking about like socialism. That's actually yeah. not liberal. <laughs> and I've been I've been listening to a book. I didn't couldn't make it through the whole book. I had to stop it by somebody who said that capitalism is he was saying that capitalism was terrible because she wanted socialism. There is no conflict between the two. By the way, we have socialism in the United States. We have social security. We have Medicare. We have a lot of things that would fall under the general heading of socialism just, in just the United States. give you a really quick example of what somebody would be totally shocked of. There's a whole industry that is socialist capitalism. It's the insurance industry. Right. It is the definition of socialism, but it's being done capitalistically. Right. Profit. And there's no there's no barrier between the two. People get that mixed up when they're talking about economics. Well, there's a major. I think they mean disruption. communism when they're talking right. socialism. There's a major global disruption going on that is that is changing the 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 face of everything that started under Richard Nixon. Now, Richard Nixon and and his the people around him, particularly the Secretary of State, opened up the global economy when we began trade. We recognized what was then Red China, Communist China, which technically is still communist, but is in fact communist socialist. Well, I actually not communist. It's I, basically I, it's socialist feudalist. capitalist. I would say it's but, feudalist. Go, go ahead, though. <laughs> but the difference that's emerging in the, globe, in the globe today is autocracy on one side and democracy on the other side. And it's almost like a conflict of religion. Autocracy means that there's some people at the top who run everything, and whether you like it or not, and they may go through the form of saying we're having elections, but the elections are tightly controlled. And one person, the person who has been selected by the people at the top always win. Uh, that doesn't go on in the United States. It does go on in Russia. It does go on in China. And the global, the global, the globe is splitting and it's going to be uncomfortable. Why is that critical for investors to understand? are people who understand the economy to understand. Evergrande is a prime example, yeah. which were dollar-denominated bonds. They had dollar. There was a real estate development, huge corporation in Russia. China. With dollar-denominated bonds. China. Basically, they were- China. 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 I'm sorry, yeah. China. 
they were borrowing money from people in the United States to develop stuff in China. And they have defaulted on debts and other real estate agencies are defaulting on debts and it's kind of falling apart. If you had not very long ago, we had something called BRICS. Yes. That and the R in BRICS was Russia. Russia. And Brazil, people were investing, Russia, India, and China. Brick. Right. People were investing in, in, among other things, Russia and China because they got high interest rates on their bonds, particularly. And they thought that's cool, but they're discovering like now that it's very, very dangerous because a lot of those bonds where you loan money to somebody in Russia have become nearly worthless. Well, and we don't know if they're worthless or not because the market on which they're traded is closed, so we don't know. Um, China is exhibiting some of the same characteristics. Um, it's one of those things to be aware of. So take a look at where your money is invested and particularly where bonds are invested. If you're in a bond fund or a bond oriented something, a higher interest rate loaning money to a country that could be subject in the future to sanctions by the United States probably is not the smartest thing to do at this point. And I'd like to kind of interject a kind of sliver of a different subject, but it's on the same subject into this, uh, something we talked about before the program started. Um, Evergrande is kind of the poster child of the entire real estate property development part of China. Uh, it has been a massive growth area for many years. Through the Great Recession, it continued to grow. And we talked about it, you know, this was 14, 15 years ago, but we talked about it then that they, the government of China was in essence paying for big cities that didn't have anybody living in them to keep the economy going. And Evergrande was one of those companies. Uh, they, they have been both through true profit of selling to consumers, but also through great benefit of subsidies from their government racked up this massive amount of debt, uh, both to China, the government of China, as well as to external investors. A lot of dollar-denominated bonds here. Whenever Grand defaulted, it had a big impact on that market. And this is the thing, this is kind of the biggest piece of news here. That market year-to-date is down 97% compared to last year during the same time period. That's the bond issuance of dollar-denominated debt to real estate developers. How, what's that, what does that even mean? Last year, by this point in the year, more almost $9 billion, with a B, dollars worth of debt had been given and loaned to these companies by Americans. This year, not $9 billion. 295 million that is, Which is too much that's still too much but it, hopefully it was targeted if, if that little trickle came through hopefully it went to the right ones but that's that's the deal is that you can't tell right now the amount of debt associated with these co companies in china this is a real serious problem and this is a problem we've been talking about for 10 years about china about how their corporate debt is skyrocketing and if you, you know, when you look at American debt to GDP and we talk about how bad the, the, the debt we have is, if you take the, the corporate debt of state-sponsored Chinese companies into account when you're looking at their state debt, they look a lot more like we do, not like the poster child of, of, of good budget. There's, a, there's, a, there's an issue here that I think is fairly critical. American capitalism 
unrestrained capitalism, made a big bet. The world made a big bet on Russia. And in retrospect, we can look back at that and, and we can read people who said this is a really bad idea because it's got a megalomaniac dictator. Uh, and I'm going to make a forecast as a result. Very high probability. There's no certainty about the future. The price of food over the next year is going to rise significantly. Well, that's Why is it going to rise significantly? That's a hard one to make. Uh, so difficult. Not, not <laughs> just because Russia is one of the... Is, is, I think Russia is the largest exporter of wheat in the world. Right. And Ukraine was um, number three. So the number one number and number two. three just disappeared well, that would be, from the that market. That would be really good for U.S. farmers except for one major problem. Fertilizer. And that major problem is Russia is also the world's largest exporter of fertilizer. And so the price of fertilizer is going I, to go up. I think we have a corner on that market in D.C., all you no, have to, no. it's just full of fertilizer. I, I have heard it coming from my news station. Anyway, go ahead. Go no, ahead. no, no, no. In, in fact, um, animal dung is oh. a much less efficient fertilizer than the stuff that's made from natural gas that right. Russia was No, making. I mean, D.C., that's, that's just the politicians. They're, they're, right, they're, I said it's I'm, animal dung. I'm yeah. trying oh, to be nice yeah, here. Okay, 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 okay. gotcha, gotcha. Um, so the farmers... In the United States, there's a shortage. There's literally a worldwide shortage of fertilizer. Everybody who wants to get fertilizer is not going to get fertilizer this next year. And they're not going to get as much of it as they want. And it's going to be much more expensive, And which is why the price of gasoline has gone up. The price of oil has gone up. Russia had about 8% of the world's exports, 12% of the world's petroleum. About 40% of their exports have, of oil have basically disappeared off the market for a couple of reasons. One, people are really hesitant to loan money to Russia to get oil, which they have to do. And secondly, most of Russia's oil exports and grain exports and fertilizer exports go through the Black Sea right past the war zone. And for some reason or another, big ships that transport that stuff have a hesitancy. The, the owners have a hesitancy to send them sailing past someplace where anti-ship missiles are being fired. Let, let me just explain that real quick. When he says hesitant to loan to Russia, what does that have to do with selling? Well, Russia doesn't own a whole bunch of tanker ships, and those tanker ships don't usually own the oil that they're carrying. So if Russia hasn't been paid for its oil yet, and it's having trouble coming up with money, because it's all been seized, they have to pay the tankers. So they have to get a loan to pay the tankers. Hard to get the loan because the Russians are threatening to pay it back in rubles, which are not very <laughs> marketable at the moment. And uh, it's once you have a loan in Russia and you're ready to hire a ship to come and take it, for some reason, the ship captains don't like all the booming that's going on around where they have to drive a ship full of flammable yeah, they, stuff. They have sensitive ears. Yeah, it's it's it makes them stay up at night. They can't sleep. All that stuff, you know. So it's hard for them to distribute their oil at the moment. Okay, back to you. Here, here's another fundamental of commerce that at one time didn't exist, but exists hugely right now. When you buy something, particularly something large, it's going to be delivered to you. It's very different from going to the store and buying something. If I go to the store, if I go to uh, the local grocery store, the hardware store, and I want something, I get the item at the same time I'm giving the money. There's no loan involved. Well, let's use a credit card, and then it's a very fast well, loan if you pay so, it off yeah. in the 30 days. Yes, go ahead. It's, it, but I'm talking about if, if I use cash as an example. Okay. If I'm going to buy oil from Russia, it's like ordering something from Amazon or someplace else online. I basically loan the money to Amazon 
and then they ship the item to me. If it takes a week for the item to get to me, I have loaned the item to Amazon for a week. If I want, if somebody wants to buy a shipload of oil or fertilizer or wheat, none of which have been embargoed, by the way, from Russia, the first thing they have to do is loan Russia the equivalent value of all that wheat, oil, or fertilizer that they want to buy. Russia then will hopefully load it on a ship and then send the ship and two or three weeks or a month later, you get what you paid for. They don't have overnight delivery. Uh, maybe if Amazon were to take over Russia, they could fix that, but that would be different. Well, that would so, be a very large delivery truck to get a tanker right. into it and then deliver it. Yeah, that would be a very large truck. Given, given the opportunity, I think Amazon could figure out how to do it. Anyway, the point that I'm trying to make is, and, and particularly since Visa and MasterCard no longer offer services in Russia, that makes it even harder. The point I'm trying to make is the world is a different place than we intuitively in many cases understand. And so the price of oil goes up because people don't want to loan money to Russia because sanctions could be racked up higher against Russia at any point. And you never can tell whether Russia is going to pay back. By the way, Russia just announced that they're paying rubles for oil now and rubles are pretty much worthless. So you got to buy rubles, which is not a particularly good thing to do. Yeah. They, and the reason why they're doing that is the ruble is basically in free fall and they don't have access to their foreign reserves to buy the ruble with to prop it back up. So they're saying if you buy oil from us, you have to buy it in rubles, which means first you have to buy the rubles. You have to do an exchange and the exchange rate's not very good right now. And Russian rubles may be worth a lot less at the time you exchange it or a lot more at the time you exchange it than when you need to pay for it. So you may require more rubles to make the same deal. So this this makes it more difficult to buy the oil. This is we've talked about this for years about how oil the oil market is vastly denominated in dollars. It's because the dollar's really stable out there and and when you're making a transaction, it isn't because Iran wants to sell oil in dollars that they have to take dollars. It's because nobody wants to sign a contract in a different currency that has lots of fluctuations up and down and around. If, if they do a, a transaction there, they could lose a lot of money that has nothing to do with the thing that they're buying. It's the, the foreign exchange rates are just horrible. And so by the, you know, when we got a double digit Russian inflation right now, 20 plus percent, if you are about to make a purchase tomorrow of oil, you got to go to market and buy a bunch of rubles. You can't buy $40 million of rubles from in, in a quick, quick purchase. You have to buy it from lots of places. And that means it takes a little bit of time. And this is where the risk of default of Russia becomes a critical issue. Yeah. If you loan the equivalent of $100 million, which is easy to do when you're buying oil, yeah. to Russia, and Russia says, we defaulted. We're not paying our debts to the West anymore. Or, or they say, yeah, you loaned us $100 million. We're going to pay that in rubles based on the exchange rate when we sign the contract, which is, yeah, yeah, you can understand that would be bad. That is why the oil exports, the wheat exports, and the uh, one of the two reasons, and the fertilizer exports, among other things, have dropped. It's hard to see the estimates on this. There's a lot of numbers floating around, around 40%. 
And of course, we mentioned this last hour, but it's important to recognize that, and we mentioned it earlier this hour, that most of the exporting of large commodity quantities that Russia does is through the ports that are currently where the war is going on. In the Sea of, is it Arzuz? Anyway, the one that where that's between Ukraine and Russia. Um, Azov. And that is Azov. 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 One of those names. This is going to impact what happens down the road. Uh, and the world is shifting, and it's shifting massively. I don't see it shifting back to saying Russia's a good old boy anymore. Russia's somebody we can trust for a long time. No, that, and that ship has just readjust, it sailed. Uh, short of a complete regime change in Russia and everything that's associated with it, which I don't see happening in the near future. This is the reality we're in, folks. And this is one of those things it's worth adjusting for. Uh, I have another subject I want to talk about, but you may. But I've been talking for a while, so you want to talk? Uh, I did. That's. I wanted to talk about something. We have covered this hour and last hour a lot of negatives and some positives. But even the positives, we've been all like, "Well, the labor tight makes for higher pay, and if you're an employer, ah, scary." Here's the good news: there's a lot of it. We are exploding with growth here. Mm-hmm. What is it from? You know, what, why, what, what is it that suddenly we're, why are we growing so fast suddenly? What is, what is this maintaining? What's maintaining this growth? What, what's happening? We're having a major technological revolution going on that is at the same level as the digital revolution in the late 90s. It hasn't hit the rest of the world yet. Big parts of that is productivity at home or at work, new types of technology. And I've, I've said this repeatedly, but it's worth saying again, we had new business growth, the growth of new small business at a rate we have not seen since World War II coming out of the pandemic. A lot of the hiring that we're seeing is to new companies that are doing something that the founder dreamed of doing for years and years, and it took them being out of work during the pandemic to actually start the business. And a lot of those businesses got started. And by a lot, it's just, if you're looking at a graph, it's suddenly you're, you're on the Great Plains and suddenly Mount Everest is right in the middle. The spike in new business growth it was just phenomenal. And these aren't people that had the small business loans available to them because the business didn't exist prior to the pandemic. And I've had people say, well, that's probably just got money from the government. For go-. No, we can see that in the graphs. That's called fraud. That means the, the business had to exist before the loan. What we're seeing is new businesses. That's where this growth is coming from. The types of things that we're doing in manufacturing, the number of CNC shops. These are shops that you send them designs for whatever it is that you want in metal, in wood in many different things and they cut them with speed and accuracy and get them back to you very quickly new technologies and automation are just the the exponential growth in productivity is what we're seeing in many of these places now so why is it that they have to hire if they've got this exponential growth in productivity because you still need people to program the automated technology And when people get used to having these new products that are better than what they had before, the demand goes up. So you need to hire more people in an area that has higher productivity. All of that means more growth. 
This is w- right underneath this. The, the amount of money spent on medical technology, not just antiviral, across the board during the pandemic makes the past 20 years look like nothing. So our life expectancies are going to improve. Our productivity is going to improve. It already is. We're having productivity that is just phenomenal increases right now, which is very unusual, except that we have a tight tight labor market, which means just like when you've just had to lay off a bunch of people, you feel like you're short-staffed, so you do more work. When there's not enough people to hire, you're back in that position. So productivity is going up right now. There's a burnout point at some point where you can't just keep working harder. And that seems to be being met with new technology, better communication, more automation. It's We're, we're on the cusp of something really amazing and big, and there's going to be some inflation before we get there. But the amount of new industrial capacity that's being built right now in the United States says that supply chain issues are probably not going to be a major danger for new inflation in the future. We're bringing the supply chain back and that takes time. But all that investment is causing new jobs to be made. Again, this is why the labor market is tight. We're doing things we weren't doing before and we're doing them, the things that we were doing before, better. If you juxtaposition China over the top of that, you see the reverse. You see productivity rates dropping drastically because their factories keep getting shut down because of lockdowns. Uh, If you look at what's happening in Europe, they're being far more impacted with the prices of goods than we are. Uh, We get a lot of our metal uh, from Canada and from Mexico, where they got a lot of their metals directly from China and from Russia. So all those tariffs from the Trump administration were because of the subsidies in metals from Russia and China. And China was the poster child of this, but the tariffs were on everybody. Uh, So just laying that out, Russia, China, they're having a greater impact on the European economy than than they're having on our economy. And our deal-making, we just made a deal with the UK. I don't know if you saw that. A free trade agreement. Yes. Yes, we did. It's massive. Sort of. It's huge. It's not finished yet. It's not finished yet, but it's there. We just also got rid of tariffs on steel and aluminum with Europe. So the blocks are forming, like you said, and, and our block looks a lot better at handling new technology and creating new technology and innovation than the other block, which means that our future looks really good if we can just prevent really nasty catastrophes from happening. Uh, So that's my outlook. Even though we've covered all these things that are going wrong in the world, there are a lot of things going right in our economy right now. Um, When we're looking at the yield curve, we're watching that. There's some weirdnesses in the interest rates. The leading economic indicators are coming back with, hey, we're really close to the as fast as we can grow right now. We can't increase the speed, which is that means that we could expect more growth for a while. But at some point, we're going to have to digest this. And you have something to say. Well, we, to, to add to what you just said, there's an announcement that certainly was big in the news that we follow that the United States is committed. President Biden made the announcement that we are going to give 
not give sell an additional 15 billion cubic meters of liquefied natural gas to Europe within the next year. That is a massive increase, around a third of what we have already been sending them. And Germany said it would wean itself off Russian gas by mid-2024. That's a big move. Why is it important? Because when it comes to natural gas, and this is, you talked about District of Columbia, there's certainly a lot of natural gas that oh, comes yes, out of the District yes, of Columbia. Yes. yes. Um, we have a lot of natural gas to the fact to the point where sometimes we burn it off at the wellhead because it's the price has been so low. There's a major shift in the petroleum economy going on and Europe that was dependent upon Russia is going to be more and more dependent upon the United States. And of course the Middle East uh, they're, they're setting up contracts with the Middle East, which then throws another vulnerability out there. The fact that there's going to be these big li liquefied natural gas tankers going around everywhere, which you blow up very nicely if you shoot them but that's beside the point and recognize that the world is changing and we're out of time yep if you would like to talk to us off the air we actually give personalized investment advice as fiduciaries uh their email addresses to reach us are jeff or jake at tpwc.com that's tango papa whiskey charlie or the personal wealth coach you can go ahead to that web page the personal wealth coach tpwc.com there's a contact form you can get our emails uh you can sign up to uh, our newsletter there read our newsletters going back listen to radio programs going back lots of years you can find our podcasts anywhere where podcasts exist until next week thanks for listening this has been the personal wealth we're clear <laughs>